mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russ Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Good morning. Good morning, Russell. Today I am bright and alive and feeling good. And I've actually just been running around the park in Margate. And we're, we're doing this super early today. It actually weirdly brings back memories of when we were promoting the book and we had to go on TV and all that stuff when you get up like really early. Mm. Um, it's just crazy. But today, <laughs> I um, partly why I'm talking about running is because this time of year, winter for me, is always a crazy time for my body because I always feel completely like um, way bigger than I actually am. And I've often, because I used to be in a pop band when I was growing up, um, I always was told I had to lose weight. So from the age of like, I don't know, 16 or something, all the music people I was working with would be like, you need to get fit. You need to like lose weight. And I was looking the whole time at like all these pop stars, like um, totally irrationally as well, because they weren't anything to do with me, but like people like Britney or something or like Christina. And I remember even when I was turning 20, I thought I'd failed. And I had this complete, I literally cried on my 20th birthday because I felt like my music career hadn't taken off because I'd started doing it at the age of 14 or whatever. But one of the major problems for me during music was my body. And like, I was always losing weight and then putting weight on and losing weight and at one point I was about 12 stone and right now I'm probably like 15 and a half stone so you get an idea like I don't look bad at the moment but like in my brain I sometimes feel like I am particularly in winter and um, recently I saw some paintings which when I saw them on Instagram initially I was just blown away by them because I'd never seen paintings at least like in the last I don't know 10-15 years that were, were, were sort of depicting bodies and they weren't necessarily like even my, like a male body, but because they often depict female bodies, but um, and also the, the, the body of our guest today. But I totally had this kind of um, feeling of connection and understanding and, and that kind of un, the, the way that you can feel and the way you see yourself versus like the way you actually do look to the world. So, you know, kind of like body dysmorphia and, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. There, there's all these kind of issues that I think many of us do have, but we often don't talk about. And like the power of these paintings for me is that you can you know bring up these discussions and i think they bring about a sense of solidarity between all different kinds of people all over the world and the artist we're meeting today is also really young so it's like so exciting i feel like we're at the beginning of their career and i'm very very proud to welcome to talk art lydia Pettit. hello hi lydia hi, hi. Thanks for that lovely introduction and an excellent segue into a lot of what my work is about. <laughs> <laughs> How are you today? I'm great. Uh, I kind of rolled out of bed and booked it to the studio and I'm like, here I am <laughs> ready to talk about so many things. Love that. Yeah. We've got you bright and early. Bright and early. Like, I wish I was yeah. a morning person, honestly, but it just never, it never happens. But I'm always happy when I'm up. <laughs> By the time I'm out of bed, it's good. It's funny you bring up Britney and um, that sort of early 2000s era of superstardom because I, I'm a thick woman. I've got 
boobs. I've got a butt. And even when I, and I'm like 250 pounds now, but even when I was like much smaller and more like you could say like conventionally attractive, Mm -hmm. I still like struggled to buy clothes. I struggled to find a space that I could fit into physically and even like emotionally. And a lot of the women who were like famous at the time when I was growing up, like middle school, high school, were people like Paris Hilton, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, like yeah, people who simply did not, I, I would never look like, even if I done dangerous things to like lose weight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's impossible to not compare yourself to the images you see. And I think that's been a major conversation in the past 15 years of representation in the media, not just for fat people or fat women, but also for people of color, queer people, um, people with disabilities. It's just like when you see yourself represented, it really gives you a lot more confidence and like awareness and acceptance towards the way that you exist physically and the space that you take up in in the world. So I can't imagine what it was like to be a pop star. (laughs) That sounds crazy. Yeah, well, I was kind of aspiring to be one, but I I think there was always this, this kind of pressure. And I remember touring in America and just being on stage and I would always spend the whole concert thinking about how fat I was. It wasn't like, you know, yeah. you'd, you'd want to be singing the song and enjoying yourself. And occasionally you would you, you would get there. And I remember being in um, Chicago once and just feeling like you were flying because it's such an amazing thing when you're on stage and it works. But like a lot of the time, it was just all about how I was feeling fat, basically. Yeah. And it's, it's so tragic that I think it did sort of stop me wanting to be a performer because I hated being on stage. But um, that's interesting. So you were born in 1991 and I was born in 1980. But it's interesting that those figures were actually quite similar figures to the ones I was looking at as well. Well, um, I think in the 90s as well with the whole heroin chic thing and like... Um, oh, yeah. The And my dad actually works in cosmetics. So he ran makeup companies growing up. And so I was surrounded by the imagery of like the supermodel and... Um, Kate Moss and Cindy Crawford and all these people, uh, Christy Brinkley. And uh, yeah, that was not particularly helpful growing up as a person with my particular genetics. Um, But also it, it was, it's not a good thing to make your value so tied to your appearance um, because regardless of what you look like, you're not any less valuable than the next person. Yeah, totally. Lydia, where are you in the world right now? I'm in London. So, and you live in London now? Yes. So I moved here three and a half years ago to go to RCA. But other than that, this is like the first time I've really moved somewhere. And I really chose a dramatic change. <laughs> but but um, why, was it, why was it London? Why was London the destination at that time? Kind of happened by accident, honestly. Because um, I think in the States, so I've been at art school since I was 15. Um, I went to this art magnet high school in Towson, which is next to Baltimore. And it's like a public school, but you have to audition to get in. And so it's free, but you can focus on like 13 different uh, concentrations, one of which is visual art. And then I went to the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore for my BA, BFA. And by the time I got to the point of considering grad school, I think in the States, they really don't promote school in any other country, which is absurd because like everyone knows how expensive education is in the States. It's like a mm. crime. It's insane. Um, so I definitely was had this mindset of like, I have to go to Yale. I have to go to Yale. 
I got to go to their painting program. I got to go like one of these like Ivy League prestigious programs that have these like unbelievable people, people teaching there. Mm. And um, even though I talked to so many people who went to Yale, um, including like Angedeka Akinili Crosby and um, some other people who are escaping me at the moment. But basically the consensus was like, it'll like break you down. They will break you like a dog and put you back together in the end, maybe. And like, <laughs> oh my god! I know it's like, and then at the end, like maybe it's good, or maybe you'll. Amanda, this girl back in Baltimore, she told me basically like she had like years of like identity crisis, like recovering from that experience. And I'm not saying it's all bad. You know, it's an incredible program. There's like amazing artists that come out of there, but it's a very particular type of education. So I was like gunning for that. I, I was like, I'm gonna keep applying until I get in. I'm going to be one of those people who's just like has that determination. But then it came up to the deadline period and I was applying to uh, a few American schools. And I just had this gut feeling that like I needed something completely different. I just needed an option that was like way out of that narrow view of education to me. And because I had been in Ireland, the school, the Burren College of Art has this like sister relationship with the RCA. And so I was like, Okay, I remember a school. I didn't know there was like a, a good, great school or whatever. I was just like, okay, RCA is a school in London. I also knew of Slade because of Jenny Saville. Um, she teaches there or taught there at some point. And of course, she was like a big, she was a big part of my arts education. So I just kind of applied there and a Glasgow School of Art, totally off the cuff. And I didn't even get an interview at any US school. Like they, no, they did not want me. But then RCA in Glasgow, like, immediately accepted me after my interview. And I was just like, clearly fate is, like, telling me to go to the UK. I'm going to go with it. (laughs) (laughs) Because the whole point for me of grad school is not just to spend time on my work and, like, really um, enter the studio after I developed this, like, new studio practice for myself, but also to find a pathway to the life that I want, which is really to be an artist as much as possible. Um, you know, make the side hustle things kind of minimal. Um, and so I thought there would be more opportunity for that in London. And so here I am and really achieved that goal way earlier than I thought I'd be able to. Um, oh, it's our win. Their loss, our win. Totally. Um, <laughs> I'd just like to explain what Ivy League is because we hear that term a lot where oh, yeah. people describe uh, American schooling. And I think here in the UK, uh, the equivalent would be Oxbridge. So you're, yeah. you're, you're meant to go Cambridge or Oxford and that's classed as Oxbridge. But in the States, you, you, it's decided as Ivy League. What, what is that? Is that so that's Yale and Columbia? and Yale, Columbia, Princeton, uh, Cornell, Harvard. I think, I don't know if like Stanford, just like these really big brain, big institutions that you're told your whole life, probably similar to Oxford and Cambridge. Like if you go there, you're a freaking genius. Like your life is, and like people work, like people, I have so many friends in high school who their whole thing was to try to get into as many of those schools as possible. And a lot of them did. And it's like, congratulations. But also like the amount of work as a child that you have to put into that is like kind of insane. And I think about myself as a teenager and I'm really lucky that I ended up in art and like, I actually like art. Like this is all pure dumb luck in in many ways, but um, 
if I had to make a decision about my future at that age in terms of like what field I wanted to study in, like, I don't know, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I guess the Ivy responds to like laurels, like awards. That's what the accolade of just talking about the term, because like, you hear it a lot and you always just like pass you by. And then when you actually break it down, what it means. Anyway. Mm. What, um, what, what was it actually like growing up in, um, in Baltimore and Maryland and that kind of place? Like, you know, because it's, it's not somewhere necessarily in culture that, you know, movies you often see like L.A. or you see New York. But for me, I have a relationship to it because of the work of Tori Amos, the singer, oh. um, because she she grew up there. So I always had this like weird um, sort of connection to that place because I loved her her first few albums like so much it was like such a formative thing for me in the early 90s um so what was it actually like there was it was it was it very cultural were there museums you know did you see a lot of art well so I grew up in the county I'm very much a county brat um I grew up in like (laughs) super white private school zone not a lot of cultural exchange very much just like lacrosse you know was the whole thing lax bros um getting drunk (laughs) like it it wasn't you know that was very much the culture there wasn't really a lot of interest in art in the schools that I went to my siblings and I all went to the same private school and by the time I turned 14 I just found it like totally I mean it was totally demoralizing you know in middle school I was in an all-girls school and I think all girls and all boys things like it's not that they're like automatically terrible it's pretty bad it's pretty bad to like remove the interaction of the other gender from your life or the possibility of other genders you know it's it's just like very strange but I had like an art class kind of um I remember we would do works after like Frida Kahlo or uh Georgia O'Keeffe it was like Frida Kahlo Georgia O'Keeffe Vincent Van Gogh and those are like in Monet they were the three. Those, those are the ones. I would have loved it. I would have, have loved dream. that because George O'Keefe and Frieda are like. So well, here's dangerous. the thing: like, amazingly badass artists, incredible, but yeah. they're kind of like sanitized. Like, you don't learn anything about like the queer history of it, the sort of like feminist elements, the like radical nature of their work. You just like flowers and skulls and um, <laughs> this lady with Animals. this lady with a unibrow. Like, that's all you're. <laughs> That's all you're getting at that age. Um, and also from that kind of institution, which isn't particularly interested in teaching you anything political, um, very mm. conservative environment. Uh, but then basically I was like, so, so yeah, I grew up in the County. It's all like, there is no, I mean, our town was a mall. There's like a, there's a roundabout with a mall and that's the town. And then it's like branches off the, the roundabout with like Burger King and like all that stuff. Um, not super interesting. Definitely not. The only cool thing about Towson is that Divine has been laid to rest there. God bless Divine. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and John that. Waters. I met so John Waters is obviously Baltimore hometown hero. Yeah. You you can spy him at the grocery store. You know he's around. Oh my god, that's so. And cool. when I was about to go to Micah, uh, when I was in high school, I went to talk with at Micah with him and Barry Levinson and David Simon. And I remember walking up to him. I was like, so like, he's so, he's so incredible in person. And I was just like, hi. And I told him I went to Carver, which is the the magnet school. And he was like, oh, I went to Carver when I was in middle school. I had an art teacher and she was such a bitch. And I was like, (laughs) 
<laughs> like, I was like, cool. Um, <laughs> it's quite funny thinking about the whole Frida Kahlo thing, because like your more recent work, I mean, in, your, your work did start out with you making paintings of, of many different people, um, including like a nude portrait of a friend of yours in the bath, yeah. and, you know, all kinds of paintings, um, but also very um, personal paintings of your bedroom and like um, your sex life and kind of, you know, personal um, themes as well. But one of the paintings that really struck me in the new show with White Cube was a portrait of you where you're looking straight into the lens almost, you know, like like very direct stare, but you, you're wearing a kind of choir girl um, tunic. Can you speak a bit about that that painting? Was that related to your, your youth and your growing up? Yeah, so at that private school, they were an Episcopal school. There's this program when I was 11, they wanted to start the first girls choir at Old St. Paul's in Baltimore. And they, you know, hired a bunch of us little babies. And we practiced every morning for an hour before school. And then we would sing on Sundays. At one point, we even did like a, a tour up to Massachusetts. We recorded an album. <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, Is it on Spotify? No. Oh God, no! I, I think like my parents have a copy of it in their in the depths of their knickknacks, you know. But I mean, I have a lot of fondness. So I would wear those those vestments when I performed in church. They were very like you know. There's a lot of memory attached to that particular article of clothing. But I've never really talked about that time. But recently, when I was making this show, I just had this really strong urge to do a portrait in my, like, my younger self's vestments. And I didn't really, a lot of time when I make work, I just, like, do it and I figure it out later. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm not like, this was sometimes, you know, for example, we could talk about the piece with the scissors. That one, I was like, this is what I'm thinking about. Let's go for it. But I just wanted to do this this portrait and... I realized, I mean, it's definitely about the complexity of being in an environment like that when you're going through puberty and like the, you know, the shaming nature of church and Christianity and religion in general. And like, it's just like a strange environment. Also like being around peers. And, but for me, I, it came down to this memory I had where I was 13 and the night before I'd been at like a male friend's house, like a boy's house with some other girls and some other boys. And me and another girl like showed our boobs and it was like so liberating and exciting and like, Ooh, this is so naughty. Like what's going on. And just like one of those moments when you're little, not little, but like when you're going through puberty and you're like exploring your sexuality and you're like interacting with people in that way for the first time. And it's like taboo, but like, someone else is doing it so it's like cool but then the next morning at church my best friend at the time who had been there told all the girls what I had done and my friend like I was, I was buttoning up my cassock the like black the black clothing and my friend came up to me mm-hmm. and she was just like I can't believe you did that and just like the weight of shame like really like like sunk into me for the first time in that in that sense of like being shamed for your sexuality through like with your peers and like being seen as like a slut or being seen as like bad. Right. And I was a very, I was like a total nerd. Like there was like, you know, I wasn't like a wild kid or anything, but not that there would be a problem if I was, but 
it, it was just like a really intense memory that I still, I still remember that feeling of just like staring into my locker after she said that, just like, first of all, feeling betrayal of, you know, my friend disclosing this like really personal private thing. And then just feeling like I did something so wrong that I, that like, even though I made this choice with my body that I was wrong for it. So I think that painting is so much about wanting to commune with my younger self and comfort them. Mm. And like, I wrote this Mm. paragraph about it where I was just like talking about like watching myself as it like leading up to that point and the sort of change and the shift that happened and the path that I would go on in the future to experience more experiences, like even worse than that. But it's like the desire to, the change of the past is so strong sometimes. It's the, the desire to put the knowledge you have now into a younger version of yourself as a form of protection. But at the same time, letting that version of myself know that like I am okay and like eventually it comes to a good place. But yeah, so it's it's about that like complicated yearning. It's amazing how it stays with yeah. us, isn't it? It's like a kind of echo or something. It's sort of, mm. it's like all these moments in our past. There's often like these very significant times, which might be just one word said by somebody and how it can really like last. And then 20 years later, you still think about it. I'm always really fascinated by that. I've been really interested recently about body memory mm. as well. And the fact that your your actual um, physical body can have memories yeah. and like, you know, um, I saw an osteopath recently and she was telling me all this stuff about myself that it's like a trace within your body. And I was just like, how the hell do you know that about me? And it's it's really a fascinating thing. Yeah, I think the body absolutely holds. I mean, I, so I wrote a sort of the start of this body of work at RCA. I wrote a dissertation about how like living with PTSD or living with trauma is like being a haunted house and how the ghosts are like those flashbacks that you encounter or like the moments where you like someone touches you in a particular way and you like seize up and it's like sends you back to the past in the same way that a ghost is a, is a representative of the past um, and kind of shows up unexpectedly and interrupts you. Uh, So I think that not just space, physical space, like that can hold memory, but also definitely the body. I think you described the body as being uh, a host to trauma. Yeah. An artist statement. Yeah. But you, so you mentioned the haunted house and ghosts and we're about to get onto scissors, but it feels like the kind of archetypes of horror uh, are a really great way for you to express your biography. It feels like that, that is like the tropes are what you are able to get your, your message out there with. Yeah, definitely. Um, Cause I realized that I, cause I love horror. Horror is like, my thing i've seen so many horror movies seen awful horror movies i've seen amazing horror movies i do not discriminate i go for all of it uh sometimes you'll encounter a horror film that is like obviously like a b-movie high camp absolutely ridiculous but just the creativity in that absurdity is kind of charming and amazing but then of course you have like incredible films that have been made forever but have been kind of looked down upon because of the genre they belong to but there's a lot of common tropes in horror you know there's things like the final girl which is the sort of like slasher the intruder um keyhole key, the keyholes like seeing things through yeah yeah the knives the weapons 
and the sh- shadows, shadows. The, the, the shadows and black yeah. black yeah. liquid as like this disease that's the stain um mm, the sort of in- the void, infection yeah. like there's all these things also uh the, the, the staircase as well because people always run up the stairs and then you're always like what i know and doors <laughs> or lift an elevator or yeah. doors as well just even like oh, yeah, what doors, what is yeah. behind the door or like what what is coming through the door as a portal and oh man there's like the window the like darkness of the window and like this mm. at night when you look through and you can't quite see and I don't know. There's all these like images. There's a an entire catalog of images that have been created throughout the years and revisited over and over again, whether consciously or not, by directors. And so it's like this incredibly rich resource to pull from. And I think there's a lot of things in horror that I think are really taboo, maybe in other genres. One thing is like female rage. Um, I think that like anger in women, if you're raised as a woman, you're taught that like anger is like a no, no, like you're not supposed to express yourself in that way. And we're supposed to be meek and accommodating and like basically internalize the negative feelings and internalize it. So it actually hurts you. And I think there's like a liberating space in horror where you get to explore like the most disgusting elements of yourself, but in a really safe space way because it's all like fantasy of this child who was abused by her peers ignored by adults like had this horrifically kooky like religious mother who just like tortured her and you know upon reaching puberty this change happens in her and she has these powers and at the end of the film it's like I wrote about this in my dissertation. I read an article just about feminist reinvestigation of horror and like people taking things that may have been like a misogynistic perspective, but flipping it to mean something more contemporary and relatable for everybody, but especially for, you know, women who are often sort of portrayed in super weird ways in horror. Um, But basically like Carrie is a parable about what happens when you abuse a member of your society and the major consequences it can have the indiscriminate consequences it can have regardless of like if it's your fault or not because in the end carrie kills everybody except for the teacher and it's like even people who didn't know she was being abused people who might have tried to help people you know but like it that the neglect got to the point where she could not control the consequences of that behavior and then also like censor I talked with Russell a little bit about this, but like Censor by Prana Bailey Bond. I wrote it down. That's a that's a film that just came out last year. And I was so incredibly moved by it because it was this depiction of this woman who'd gone through a trauma, who had been blamed for a trauma as a child, her sister disappearing. And she spends her whole life looking for her, but also in a sense, trying to atone for that by being a film censor. And like, it was during like the video nasties era, era, I guess in the seventies, eighties in England. And what's the, what's that? Sorry. What's video nasties? Uh, apparently it was like, as a non Brit, my understanding is that there was this like hysteria about horror films, uh, especially during a lot of like killings and stuff that happened. And basically the media was, 
vilifying horror as this like you know similar similarly to um like when columbine happened like satanic panic and like when columbine happened like blaming computer games computer games music saying like that's the reason that all this violence is happening rather than it being a result of the structure of society we exist in yeah yeah i think the video nasties thing russ was like early 80s as well and it was mary whitehouse it was you know people like that who were really anti channel four as well there was this whole kind of very very far kind of right conservative um attack on on kind of popular culture and the effect it was having on the youth yeah so that film um focuses on uh, a film censor who basically watches horror films and takes out all the things that like don't pass or like rejects it, whatever. And she sees a film that is almost exactly the memory she has of when her sister disappeared. Like even the two girls in it look like her and her sister, just like, and basically that film from that point, it is very unclear what's real and what isn't, but the film follows the disintegration of the main character's psyche as this trauma is like resurfaced and as she's trying to like deal with her guilt and deal with like all of these, the, the blame from her parents, from herself, just trying to find this, her sister. And it, it at one point the, the horror movie becomes reality, the reality, becomes, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a wonderful blend and it really, it doesn't matter that it doesn't, you know, I don't want to spoil, I'm not going to spoil anything. Everyone watch Censor. I'm totally going to go see this now. It sounds amazing. It is unbelievable. And the the aesthetics, the like, the blending of sort of the VHS aesthetics with reality. And I think th- that movie I really felt was like a woman using horror to pick apart trauma in a way that was like really relatable to everybody. And there's no like romantic interest, like all that... <laughs> out we don't need that so would this movie trickle down into your practice will you see this film and now you're you're percolate and work will come from this i don't think i do anything consciously sometimes i'll see something like i saw i may destroy you which is obviously like a masterpiece of film well i know it's a tv show but like yeah whatever cinema yeah it's extraordinary yeah like michaela cole is just like such an incredible writer and actress and sorry if I said her name wrong, but <laughs> I think I, there's that sequence in, I may destroy you of the under the bed, yeah. which is also a very common thing in horror. This like what lurks under the bed, but how she uses her bed and like the space beneath it to like stuff away her pain and trauma and just ignore it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. until like literally in the end, she like stuffs a body under it. Like, I, I just thought that was such like a, a simple but effective visual tool to describe this character's, like how she was coping with her assault. And so I did do a, pa- a painting in my last show in Geneva of like some hands coming out from this, like what is called pleated curtain that's meant to be like a bed skirt. And I think that was sort of, subconsciously inspired by that i realized when i was making it but yeah i definitely i just like absorb things and if it's like an obvious reference i'll definitely realize it at some point 
Yeah. You know, there's there, there's something in your work, like a kind of charge and energy. And it's it's a, a bit like when you watch a horror movie, actually, in the sense of like, there's always this kind of ominous threat of, of, of that, the, you know, there's something coming. And what I like about it in your work is that it's the body. It's like, it's the thing that you, like so many people are constantly trying to fight with their bodies, control their bodies, like stop something from happening. That's actually just a natural process, whether that be like shaving your legs, shaving your beard, you know, whatever it may be both male female um you know any any gender i feel like it's this kind of threat and i i just love how alive that 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 kind of threat is like this idea of um almost like some kind of virus or something something that you know isn't actually unnatural and isn't wrong but we all sort of internalize it and emotionalize it because of the way we've been brought up or society's told us things is 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 that is that again just subconscious or is it very deliberate because i feel like the cropping of the paintings is so specific you, you sometimes crop right in so you see a breast or or the crotch or you know body hair it's headless there's torsos isn't there it's kind of like yeah yeah, so it seems like it's definitely something you're you're considering. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely like a conversation to be had about objectification in the literal sense. Um, I did a painting of just uh, myself wearing jeans with my legs spread open. And I remember we did like a seminar at school about it. And like people were talking all over the place. But like one person was like, this is really objectifying. And I was like, well, it's my body. I can like do whatever I want with it. I can, sh I can show myself in like a majorly unflattering light if I want to, or I can be sexy if I want to, although mostly my work is unsexy in my opinion. And I can sort of confront the viewer with these extremely sensitive, tender parts of myself and make it front and center. And often it makes people uncomfortable and it, you know, I'm not terribly comfortable either. I think sometimes I put the viewer in my own shoes when they're looking at my work and I'm sort of maybe making them feel what I feel when I look at my own body. Um, I'm in a much better place with my body now. I mean, this thing that you're talking about, it's like we're meant to spend our entire lives chasing an ideal that is constantly shifting, but also impossible. It's always going to be out of reach. There's nothing even the most beautiful people in the world, the people we're seeing that are like icons in fashion or beauty, they Photoshop themselves. And they, like, even they are chasing this, even though they've apparently achieved it, they're still chasing. Like there's nothing, it's a futile practice. And I think that that's something I've been fighting against my whole life. Like I used to have really, really really horrible self-image. I used to do all sorts of weird disordered eating stuff, like crash diets, weird shit, like spitting in a cup to lose water weight, you know, all that, like, why, 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 for, for whom am I doing that? And it wasn't actually till I gained a lot of weight and I um, got out of this like really tough period of my life that I was able to see myself more candidly and see myself more for the person I am. And um, I think painting has really helped that. It's really helped me just see what I look like because there is a point where I looked at a photo and I saw something that wasn't. I know, isn't that weird? Yeah. And it's when you go back so and you tragic. see yourself younger. Yeah, it's really sad to know how beautiful you were at that point and you just had no idea or something. It's really strange. Yeah. And actually, the title of the painting I was talking about is I May Be Defective. Yeah. And I just, that title, oh my God, the painting's extraordinary, you know, without even knowing the title, but that I May Be Defective. I mean, what a title. And that's alluding to um, dating. And I mean, I have like a very complicated rela relationship with sex and sexuality. 
I think I was like, you know, big quotes here, but like normal when I was younger. But then like I went through a lot of like really serious emotional and sexual trauma at the my late teens and early 20s. And then essentially I was, you know, it's it's hard to say I became a different sexuality, but like I was like asexual in my 20s. Like I didn't really date. I would kind of try here and there, but my body just kind of shut down. And so this thing that's so key to pretty much everyone's life. I mean, there's a small you know, portion of people who never engage in sex and that's rad. Like, you know, that's great. But I think, you know, culturally it's seen as it's like such an important thing to have sex and it's in all of our media. It's in all of our art. It's just like everywhere. And I just had no desire. I had no attraction to people for a while and I felt so alienated and I think also, I was thinking about this recently. I think like a lot of the isolation I work might come from that time where I really felt like I was standing alone in this space of like, you know, watching all my friends date, giving all my friends dating advice, even though I don't know, um, and seeing them go through this part of life that at the time I wasn't sure I would ever be a part of. And I think this past year, I finally, something shifted in my brain and body. And I finally was kind of in a space where I was like, okay, I think like, I want sex to be a part of my life. I think I want to be able to be vulnerable with somebody. I want to be able to embrace this element and that kind of desire returned to me a bit. But dating is already dehumanizing. <laughs> but oh my God, when you're dating, when you have this like really weird, complicated history with sex and sexuality and you're just, it's hard to explain to people and they're weirded out. They're like, you've never been in a relationship. Like what the hell's wrong with, you know what I mean? Like, mm, totally. I, so that painting for me, like there's been so many times where I've tried forming connections with people, tried having sex, tried like all these things. And it's like, I felt wrong. Like I felt like something was wrong with my brain or my, my body. Just like I couldn't do things the way that, you know, I think everyone else can, you know? So, and I know that that's not true. PSA I know that I'm not like defective I know that I'm a valuable person that everything in my life is valid and the way that I approach sex is just the way that I approach sex and we all do it differently um but it's hard not to feel that way <laughs> when uh you're constantly engaging in these experiences where people make you feel defective <laughs> Uh, so that's what I needed to make that painting, I think, just so I could honor that feeling. Because, you know, we all have like real nasty ideas of ourselves and these like these narratives that we continue to return to that we know logically are not true, but we feel them. And I think it's good sometimes to expel that from yourself and put it somewhere else. And that's the nice thing about painting is I can make a painting about something really ugly to me or like an ugly feeling I have about myself. And it can live elsewhere. And it's not that it does, I don't feel it anymore, but it's like, I already have a space for that. You have somewhere to put it, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Transfer it. Do you have a, a, a massive engagement from people who are, who are discovering your work that have a sort of gratitude for what you're showing, what you're representing? And you must have so many really beautiful interactions with like certain audience members who have not seen themselves represented in this way. Yeah, when I started doing this kind of super candid self-portraiture back in 2017, I did, you know, I have had people reach out to me, people of all genders and of all all body types and just say that like the frankness in which I depict myself makes them feel more liberated to not just do the same, but to just like it, it just like is an affirmation in a sense. Like, and again, like I'm just painting myself. Like the point of my work is simply this like therapeutic practice where I'm like engaging with my own trauma. I'm engaging with my body. I'm engaging with these memories and the, you know, the specters in my life to try to process them and speak on them. But artwork doesn't exist in a vacuum. So once you put it into the public, it has all sorts of um, things surrounding it. So, you know, body positivity or like feminism or big ideas, really big ideas that are like, I appreciate, but I, I'm not like a representative of it. But I really, really, and it means a lot when people get something from my work at all, honestly. Like, because for me, I, I think it's it's just a, a situation that shows that like the hyper-personal can become universal and it can be read in so many different ways, even though you think you're just showing your life. Like, mm. we all have similar experiences. Yeah, it's amazing. So let's talk about the actual materiality of your work. So we were talking about painting a lot, and then we touched on uh, the embroidery and the quilting, the patchwork that comes into your practice. Now, we had a really... I went to your OVR the other day, which is on uh, the White Cube website at the minute, which was amazing. I saw it in real life, IRL, the OVR. And we were talking about your practice. And we touched on it earlier on about the scissors and the kind of archetype of the scissors in a horror movie. And you said to me in the horror movie that women grab scissors in horror movies and you never see a man grab a pair of scissors as a weapon it's always a woman and i was like that's so fucking true and that really like really blew my mind and then you were talking about how that that narrative feeds into your practice and the fact that quotations women's work has really fed into the materiality that you've then given agency to in your own practice. Can we, can we talk about how them elements all kind of play together? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know if anyone else has noticed that thing about the scissors, but it is so true in the process, in the process of making that painting. I watch a lot of horror movies. My flatmates are so nice to deal with me being like, let's watch this random thing on Amazon or whatever. I saw like six movies in which a woman was like, "Oh, Oh my God. Like, Here's my tiny scissors. Like, oh no. Like, <laughs> and they're like, and they grab scissors to like defend themselves 
in, in, in this domestic space, sometimes it's like from a sewing table. Sometimes it's from like, like <laughs> kitchen, like <laughs> so literal, so literal. And it's like, Oh my God. I think it's just so fascinating. Cause there's also films in which the scissors are the assailant's weapon. Um, there's this French film inside. I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. Basically it's a film where this woman is stalking a pregnant woman because, um, they were in a car accident and one of them lost her baby. So she's going to stop them and to get her baby. It's real. It's, it is gory, you know, trigger warning at a lot of French cinema is kind of fucked up, but I love it. You know, it's great. She has these huge scissors that are like her main weapon, but she's like a female villain. So it's kind of like, I don't know. Someone, someone talk, can someone call me about this? Like, I feel like there has to be some research that's been done. But I just sound so funny as someone who works in both painting and textile. And I have like several pairs of scissors in my studio. And it's seen as this domestic item. It's seen as this like feminine item. And for as long as I can remember, like horror films have just employed that trope. So I thought it was like, I got to make a painting about this. This is like too important to not recognize. But yeah, so when I started incorporating textile into my practice, and, you know, like I said, I incorporated it from a very domestic action of making a quilt for my niece. It was the first thing I ever made. I taught myself how to make a quilt. My friend Cecilia helped me, God bless her. I learned how to like embroider her name and do all the stuff by hand. And I was so proud of that quilt. I had so much joy in making it. And um, quilting also, I mean, Alison Jacks just had an excellent show about the G's Bend mm. quilt makers from I, Georgia, I believe. Yeah, and actually Catherine Bernhardt, um, the artist in St. Louis has got a show her space at the moment she just went down to G's Bend and spent a week there and has met all the creatives who are making the quilts currently so she's doing a show as well in St. Louis which is on right now it's amazing like and so I think it's also important to recognize that like quilting and a lot of craft based practices also come from like in the south and black culture and it's and there's a lot of history behind it and mostly women are making these things and uh, in my family, I, you know, my family is originally from, you know, not, it's originally from elsewhere, obviously America, but, you know, I have a lot of family in Georgia. <laughs> I have a lot of family in Georgia and my mom, I was just talking to her the other day, long story, my parents moved to New Zealand, didn't plan on it, it just happened. <laughs> but she's like, I have all these quilts, these like hundred year old quilts for my family. And I was like, give them to me. Like, what an incredible history to have. And like you're feeling the, the the body of another person who is making it and touching it and like caressing this fabric. And um, there's something so bodily about textile. And that's something I learned when I started making these big quilts where I have these really painterly figurely, figurative embroideries. And then I use the quilts to kind of describe the environment and patchwork to show like elements like stairs or windows but once it's done and you hang it on the wall, it like sags, it has life. It's like, it changes every time you hang it up. And I think with time, it will continue to change. There's something so organic about that. And historically, as you said, it's women's work, it's craft, and it's definitely been looked down upon until very recently in the art world. Um, I don't think it was you know really considered fine art and it still isn't really considered fine art. Like, I think it's really important to show people like, G's Bend and like the community there because even though they're making something that we see as a domestic practical item it's still an artwork and I think that's yeah, totally 
that's true for metalworking, ceramic, that's true for mm-hmm. weaving. Like there's so many elements that we don't give the same respect as we do painting, for example. And I think it's silly and sexist. I, I do too. Totally. I, I the, your, your work titled A Bond from mm. 2021, um, that work, the way that you approach the embroidery and the face is so painterly. Like I think your approach to to fabric and to applique or, or you know, all these different um, techniques, like it's actually really painterly because the colour choices are so distinct and it feels quite fresh actually. Like I, I don't know, how, how did that develop, that kind of technique of using all these different colours to create the skin through, through um, fabric? Um, so basically I had this insane artist block my second year at RCA. I did the painting of the jeans and it's like one of the, my favorite paintings I ever did. And then it's like, no one was home in my brain. Like after that, I like could not paint. I had this canvas. I tried to start like six paintings on it and I just couldn't. And I'm not someone who like, I can't force myself to make something. It's just like painful if the urge isn't there and the sort of desire to have that kind of struggle isn't there then it's it's just like useless essentially so I try I was like trying and trying and trying I was in my second year I was like why am I wasting you know I feel like I'm wasting everyone's time I have this like amazing opportunity at the school at these tutors and I can't make anything and so oh back to you know I started talking about quilting because of my niece's quilt I remembered like how much I loved just the slowness of embroidery. I loved how you lost time. I loved how you could just do it at home. Uh, There's just things that were so different from painting, which is this like really intense process, messy, just like visceral, like it's everything's all over the place. And there was something nice about doing something more intimate and focused. And so to kind of solve this issue, I was like, okay, maybe I'll start doing some embroideries on canvas I'll treat it like a painting. And so I started much more simply than I am now. If you look at my earlier embroideries, you can see how much things have changed in terms of like the complexity of the image and of the color. But I approach it the same way I do painting. I often will work from the darkest color to the lightest. So I sort of have the image and I'm doing the shadows first and then the midtones and then the highlights. And it just it was a matter of just practice from there. And I think with embroidery, obviously you can't mix your own colors. So I just started doing visual blending where you're just overlapping over and over and over again to achieve the color and the tones and the blending and the the gradation of shadow and value that you want. And so when you get really close to it, obviously you see all the individual colors and threads, but like when you're further away, it creates a different kind of image which is, yeah, I mean, a lot of artists have done that, you know, with uh, pointillism and all sorts of things like that. Mm. But I, I don't know how to embroider properly. I just did it like I do painting. And luckily it's worked out. It's like, yeah, yeah. It becomes sculptural because a painting is 2D and suddenly with these elements it becomes this 3D sculptural object. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm And I'm thinking a lot about sculpture now, like kind of bringing things off the wall or... And it's a natural progression because it started from these 2D uh, embroideries on canvas, but by the time it's done, they're so thick that they have like dimension to them. And then adding quilting as an element, which is like a bas relief. So I have light as a, as a descriptor of the space as well. And with 
this show, I made like a whole coat that I then sewed onto a painting. And like, that's probably the most sculptural thing I've done as it has like so much volume and it's uh, referencing like a very real object that we have in our daily lives. Wow. Yeah, that, that work's called Cocoon. Yeah, Cocoon. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing work. So as we said, you've got an OVR at the White Cube Gallery mm-hmm. and you're getting attention now. People are becoming aware of your work. You're on Tall Cart. What yeah. is it like? <laughs> what is it like for you now with people recognizing you and like using your image as a, as a vehicle to communicate? The attention you're getting now, how, how is it all going and what, what is it inspiring work? Is it creating new opportunities and avenues to go down? Well, I definitely have a lot of I have some mad imposter syndrome, by the way, like, and I think it's pretty normal for everybody. But you know, things happen really quickly. Like I graduated from RCA, I was in the white cube grad show in 2020. And I was also approached by gallery in Geneva that year. And just like from there, things just like, like took off. And I didn't really know how to handle it. And suddenly I had two, like I had two solo shows to prepare for. I had like group show, Timothy Taylor, I had like all these art fairs and I went from like not selling anything and like not really having much of a career to just like, now that's my life. And that, that adjustment's been really, I'm super grateful. Do not get me wrong. Like this is awesome, but it's really weird to adjust to. And you're like, do I deserve this? Is there someone who deserves this more? Like, do I only have this because of the fact that like my parents helped me pay for school and like, you know, like there's all these like underlying things that I think we try to sort of undermine ourselves with. And I think uh, it's good to recognize all that stuff, but it's also like, I have worked hard and I have, this is, I, I have dedicated my life to this craft. And I think it's been really amazing for people to like validate that decision <laughs> and, mm. and like see what I'm doing and like get some meaning from it. And I mean, with the thing with White Cube, I still am kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> so don't know really how how it happened, but I'm. it was such an incredible opportunity and they were so supportive. And um, it's just great to be able to make work. And I think the biggest change for me is like deadlines and like <laughs> <laughs> working in a in like a pressure cooker a bit and knowing like, okay, I need to have this many pieces for this thing at this time this year but also not letting that compromise my practice, which is a really delicate balance, I think, because you want to be able to meet these expectations. You want to be able to make work for these people who are being so supportive and these collaborations, but you also don't want to produce for the sake of producing because then it loses. It's like against the point. Right. And I don't ever want to get to a point where I feel I have to produce a certain kind of thing or I have to make, I don't want to feel like a, like a human factory. Right. But it's been, I I feel like I've been learning so much about what it means to be like a full-time artist and the sort of pitfalls of that and how to figure out if someone's genuine in their support. And, but luckily I've had people really, you know, the people at White Cube have been like very supportive since the grad show. And I've been able to ask them anything about certain galleries and Sebastian Bertrand, who's the gallery I work with in Geneva um, he's been super available and helpful ever since um, we connected. And so it's really nice to be able to have someone who understands the way this thing works in terms of the art world and can tell you like, all right, this is the kind of stuff you need to look out for. Or, oh, I heard this about someone like, you know, you don't need to work with them or 
oh no, this person's really cool. I don't know. How long does it take you to make a painting? You know, like, and, and what, what, what is that process like? Because when you were talking about the embroideries, it was obviously a time when you'd stop painting and then it allows you to do something very different. Because I'm always fascinated when people make paintings, but they also make other types of work because it's almost like a relief or a bit of downtime from the intensity of painting itself. <laughs> I think it's not even like, I guess if I'd been a sculptor, maybe it would be the same thing. But like, there's so much weight behind painting, like historically, conceptually. Like there's such a lineage and like an education that I carry with me everywhere that it's impossible really, it's really hard to shake. And so whenever I'm painting, I'm holding myself to a standard and I'm being really self-critical in many ways that when I started with something I have absolutely no experience in that I taught myself, I used to be terrified of sewing machines. They used to scare me so much. And it's like something flipped in my brain. I was like, I'm going to buy a sewing machine. And now I'm like super comfortable with them. But it is so like the the amount of freedom and like liberation and like just experimentate like you can do whatever you want almost I mean you can do whatever you want in any medium but like you feel like you give yourself permission to try new things describe things in new ways like in many of my quilts there's more of a cartoony kind of idea of objects rather than a representation and if you've seen my work, like I've been a, a figurative painter since forever. So representation is like a big part of my work and like the literal understanding of an object and rendering. But with textile, I can like stitch imagery and like big weird hands and like really crooked doors and windows. And it like doesn't matter. And I give myself that allowance to like play. And I think that has actually been so helpful coming back into painting because I used to be, I used to consider myself like a pretty fast painter. I could like whip a painting out in like, I mean, a couple sittings, even like a big painting, wow. like the jeans painting, for example, that took me maybe like 10 hours, which wow. is like a couple. Yeah. It's very like, and recently I realized I've slowed down so much and in a way I'm like frustrated by it because, you know, I also, you know, I have so many friends, you guys know, Louis Fertino and like all these amazing artists who are just like pow 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 like whipping paintings out and they're so like they're like overflowing with creativity and like they're overflowing with like ideas and it just like spills onto the canvas around them and just like watching someone like him create I'm just like I'm like so envious but I know that we all have our different practices we all express ourselves differently and create differently but in a way I started appreciating the slowness and realizing that I was like taking that attentive, intimate uh, focus from embroidery and putting that into my painting in certain places, like in certain places, it's still very loose and like the paint falls on the fabric or the paint falls on the hair or whatever. But there's moments like the nose or like the way the, the your lip, my lips meet or the way, you know, the nipples or whatever, where I'm really like sculpting it. And I'm really taking time to build up layers of, and it creates like more of a translucency to the skin and a complexity to the skin. Yeah. So I'm, I'm slower now. I mean, if I absolutely have to, there was a moment, <laughs> there was a moment where I had this painting I had to do for Artissima. I had started it, but then all of a sudden they're like, okay, we're going to pick this up like this week. And I was like, Oh my God. And I was like, it's not ready. And so I busted it out really fast but not in a way where I was like, this is a terrible painting and I'm just going to send it anyway. I actually like, I, I know if I have to, I can really churn work out. 
but now I'm really appreciating the slowness and the sort of time to get to know the image rather than yeah and also you should enjoy your enjoy your your you know your time with your creativity it's quite it's quite a generous thing for yourself to to allow yourself to do that. And also, I was going to use that word translucence because I think that's what I love about your paintings is the the way sometimes you see like freckles or um, veins, you know, or even hair, you know, on the, on the skin. But like this this sense of the the complexity and the beauty within all of our scars and our you know Im- imperfections, which the world say are imperfect, but actually you know, it becomes a kind of map of who that person is. And I, I think that's so beautiful. And it is that translucency within the way that you paint. I just think it's extraordinary. So you should enjoy those moments when you're yeah. painting those nipples and painting. You guys met on a, on a, <laughs> on a Zoom crit, didn't you? Rob? Yeah. Do like we an RCA. Did, yeah. Yeah, because I've I've been because John Slice was my tutor at, when I studied at Christie's and University of Glasgow. I did a master's for a year, and the reason I did that course because it was quite a fancy course to go on in a sense, like Christie's, you know, auction house, whatever. But it was just the most transformative year of my life because of John Slice, and he, the reason I chose to to teach, uh, sorry, have him teach me was because he taught artists. So I was never going to be an artist, but I knew he taught painters, and I loved that. So um, yeah, that was how we met because he invited me when I became a gallerist to start doing crits every so often. Yeah. Talk a bit about what happened. <laughs> oh, what, COVID? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because we all did Zoom stuff. <laughs> oh, man. Zoom apocalypse. That was good. Yeah. So I graduated in 2020. And uh, basically, by no fault of my tutors, painting department, you know, God bless, it. Kind of, the school program kind of fell apart when we had to be, move remotely. And um, we were lucky to have a really excellent talks by rob and pot by um amy selman and like we had we had a couple really good things but um the artist i mean yeah it was so cool i mean a lot of the end of rca for me was like being alone in my flat and no outside space and kind of just trying to maintain my sanity and trying to like get through it somewhat unscathed and i I mean i already deal with mental illness i i got my citalopram every day i love it it definitely exacerbated my anxiety. It exacerbated my depression. It exacerbated my PTSD and like this inward look. Because I think it's honestly, it's true for a lot of people that I think quarantine and COVID, it made you look at yourself. And a lot of people work really hard, go out all the time in an effort to avoid themselves. And you couldn't really do that anymore. I always find a lot of artists, though, it's quite a solitary action making art because you're in your studio by yourself so there was a sort of in some ways there wasn't that much of a difference to what you would normally do for a period of time and then obviously you can't get out as much as possible but that a lot of artists we spoke to during that time were like it's I'm basically going to the studio on my own I'm still able to get to my studio thankfully a lot of them my problem was I didn't have a studio and all my stuff was locked in RCA so I was just kind of home and I had nowhere to go and I brought like my sewing stuff home, but I had such a hard, I I really need like a space away from my living space to create. I think like I just fall asleep if I stay home. It's kind of weird. I don't know what's wrong with me, but (laughs) if I'm anywhere near my bed, I'm in my bed and I'm asleep. So (laughs) it's really, really good. Although I still, I still fall asleep in my studio chair, but still, I think the difficult thing was not having like that routine and that destination. Cause I go to the studio every day and I've, been doing that since I moved here so that it was really difficult but to kind of help my classmates and I who were kind of all like what is going on with the program like what are we doing with ourselves I did like a little I call it the gorilla projects like the gorilla girls 
And I invited like a bunch of people to do studio visits. Lewis did one. Julie Tiet Curtis did one. Katie Hessel did one. Lens Gurk. Like a bunch, a bunch of really amazing people. Forgive me if I forgot. Just to like engage us and like speak to people about their work. And it was like a really great thing for me too, because I had no routine, but suddenly I was like, okay, three days a week, I'm moderating a studio visit. Uh, now I have a structure. So it got me through that first lockdown. And as you guys know, like, it's so fun to talk to artists and talk to them about their, their practice and see what they're working on in the yeah. studio and just pick their brain a little bit. And yeah, give- that's what we do. That's all yeah. we do. <laughs> that's how we get it. You know, whenever I do, whenever I do those crits and things, I'm actually doing uh-huh. one today for the RCA with John. Um, I, I often just, I, I always really feel for the artists because I think there's so much pressure and so much expectation. And, and I always just say to people, you just need to like really try and be yourself as much as you can. And it's the hardest thing to do in a way is find your voice, which you've found, of course, through what you're doing. My whole art school experience has been you'll never survive off of your work. So don't ever be prepared for that and always be ready to be working other jobs you know, all that stuff, which is like realistic. And it's kind of one of those things where you're like, expect the worst and then you'll be like stoked when good stuff happens. But once you start actually working with galleries, just like no preparation. It's like, what's a consignment agreement? What's, you know, what's this and that? All these practical things that you need to know about. It's not really focused on in arts education. Uh, So it's really nice to be able to have these moments, you know, whether we make them or our school makes them to talk to people who actually know about these things. But also like if I hadn't waited for it, I used to run a gallery, by the way, I ran a gallery in Baltimore. Forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I graduated from my BA in 2014 and opened a gallery in a studio building in Baltimore and did that for three years. And it was, I learned so fast about how much I didn't know about working with galleries and like working with other artists, the responsibilities that come with it. Like Rob, I'm I'm sure you know, like you, there's so much responsibility in handling another person's work and in like presenting them to the public. It was a lot. I started when I was 22, me and my friend, Abby head first, lots of like stumbling and like flailing, but it was an amazing time. We showed Lewis, we showed Teresa Cromati, we showed, Kane Co. We showed Abdi Farah. We showed amazing artists. And it was like one of the most incredible things in my life. But towards the end, I realized, I think I was finally ready to like reckon with a lot of the things that happened to me. And my studio practice just like returned to me. And ever since 2017, I've just had a consistent studio practice. And I think that's so important to be able to find that outside of academia for yourself. And that it helps you feel a bit more sure when you do go into a critical environment, sure that you can do this and you know that you know why this is good for you. You know what this does for you. But also, I think that 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 thing of like putting on shows, even of other artists, like I've seen it recently with Lindsay Mendick and Guy J. Oliver, who are in Margate and they're doing Quench and they're they're very generously showing loads of other artists for their first exhibitions here. And they learn so much about what they want for themselves as well. So even though it might be a bit of a distraction at times because you're having to like put on shows and it takes a lot of energy. I think it is a really important thing just to get out there and do shows with yeah. your friends, you know, 
regardless of the art world, create your own art world. Do you know what I mean? Because it's you who who has the power to create and change your future, yeah. not really the art world. Like the art world's more of like a facilitating thing. It can help take you to a different place, of course, and it can give you great advice and it can be supportive and it can become a family. But I also think you need to create it all yourself. And art will always exist without galleries or institutional support. Yes. So that's an important thing to remember. And the important yeah. thing also that I've learned is like, because we have this sort of like, ooh, we, you know, take whatever we can get. We're lucky to get opportunities mentality that's instilled in us. A lot of people can kind of take advantage of that. So I think that we as artists also need to demand better treatment from these, from these institutions. Just make sure that we're treated with respect, our work's treated with respect. And we ask that for our fellow artists as well. But artist-run spaces are sick. I mean, Baltimore is all like artist-run spaces. There's maybe like one or two galleries that are, you know, commercial. And I think building a community for yourself is one of the most essential things you can do as an artist that will keep you going. And like, you know, for example, I'm in Brickfield Studios in Bow. I like dragged so many people here. I was like, oh, free studio. Let me set it up for you. Oh, free studio. Oh, you need studio mates. I'll find them for you. Like, I, I think it's so important to have like a creative community that you can have regular contact with, whether it's going to shows, making your own critique groups, you know, having a studio building full of like really amazing people. Those are the most important things as an artist, you know. Maryland, mm-hmm. where in Baltimore, always makes me think of Louis Fratino and also Nathan Lane. And I'll tell you the story why. Because when Louis said he was from Maryland, we have a cookie here called Maryland. Yeah. I was like, oh, I went, oh, the cookies. And he went, what cookies? I went, Maryland cookies, Maryland cookies. And he was like, they don't exist. And I was like, what? And no. he, he went back and he was like, <laughs> they're not, there's no cookies that are known as the Maryland cookies. But also I called it Maryland and I was doing a play called Angels in America. And we all had this line about Maryland, Maryland. And Nathan Lane was like, can I just start rehearsals? And we was like, yeah, he said, it's not Maryland, it's Maryland. Maryland. We don't go like, and he was like, we don't walk around going, hey, Mary, welcome to Maryland. And I was like, I think I, I think, I think no, I said it wrong. Okay. That's how we say sorry, it. Sorry, everyone in Maryland. So the cookies Maryland. aren't from Maryland. No. Uh, some someone in the UK has totally stolen that, and it's uh, it's not Maryland. So and and Louis Fratino oh, was like, "What the hell are you talking about?" When I told him that, you also so, have a Mar- um, you have a Maryland station so, too near Stratford. We do call that Maryland. I feel like I, I should live there. The <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, you're going home, like coming home. Um, so L- Lydia, we ask every guest two questions. The first is if you could do an imaginary art heist and take home any artwork from anywhere and it could be any size, we'll help you. What artwork would you heist? heist? Oh man, probably an Antonio Mancini painting. Oh. Ooh. Okay, so Antonio Mancini is a contemporary to John Singer Sargent and and he's oh, like no, I do, I do know one of the most amazing painters I've seen in person. I've, I've, I bought this book in Italy. It was like this giant book for the 60s and it was just like this incredible like documentation of his work and his paintings are so like bursting with energy and like color and luminous and the the way he captures the skin and like the faces and uh he's just an incredible draftsman incredible painter but he also is like this sad story of someone who was really famous when he was younger and then he succumbed to mental illness and obviously they did not have treatment that was helpful back then so his he kind of disappeared into obscurity but he is like his his work is unbelievable there's this one painting i think at the school of the art institute of chicago called resting by him and it's this woman 
laying in bed sick next to a table with all these like vials of whatever potions they were using. It's so thick, like the paint, and yet so like elegant. I don't know. It's hard to describe it, but I would totally steal that painting. Cool. Oh, sick. We can yeah. definitely do that for you. I'll just write it, write it, email. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a text. It's fine. We get it. So what is, what is your favorite color? Color? Hmm. Mm. When I was younger, I was like kind of a tomboy. So I was like, steely blue is my color. Like, I really, I loved like a really pretty, like masculine slate color. You know what I mean? Now that I've grown out of that, like, weird need to prove myself to all of my like little boyfriends right mm. i think i'm looking at my 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 painting table with all my colors on it there's something like really amazing about and i actually don't use this color that much but about like viridian over white just like mm. a really powerful transparent green it it's just so shocking like when you see it how incredible like i don't know something that simple can be uh yeah so like viridian i'll pick i don't actually i, I don't know that color. viridian what, what's the word again viridian it's like it's a type of green yeah okay. it's know. incredibly beautiful green um very transparent although it definitely changes by the day but that's what i'm going to say today good one and what's the best advice you've ever received or the advice you would give when it comes to art okay my only advice, and this is something I've learned from other people, but also through running the gallery and realizing like, because we showed all sorts of different artists, different practices, but I found like the the connecting factor was simply like they loved what they were making work about. They loved what they were doing. They like were genuinely committed to whatever it was. Like I have a friend, Esther Ruiz, she makes these neon concrete sort of like space landscapes and she just like loves star wars and like just stalt theory and all these things and it's like but she's so like the love for that comes out in the work and there's like someone else i met in la who makes these like odd frames for her photographs i remember talking to her being like it's not like anyone's ever going to notice how much time i spend on these frames but it's like if you love what you're doing and like those details matter to you that comes through your work and so the only thing i could ever say to someone is just really think about like why you want to make work and like just do what you love and eventually people will notice you know do what you love and love what you do yeah well well you know what Lydia we respect you so much for doing what you love and genuinely it's the first time in a long time where I felt such a I don't know personal like my heart kind of my, my gut everything like my body just when I look at your paintings I just they floor me they really do floor me and I think if you actually look at your website and you see the development of your painting and your talent over the past five years say it's an extraordinary trajectory like the way that you've kind of developed as an artist you know and there's just been breakthrough moments where you've made certain paintings and even some of the textile pieces yeah. I think there's one called trouble in the house I just think that it's it's like you can see all the experiments that happen within painting within in embroidery for you and then suddenly when you you get to that moment of of you've found it you know it's just so exciting to witness and um yeah and i'm i'm just so excited for you and just keep being yourself because you're you're an extraordinary you. human being we also didn't talk about the most important thing that what today is <gasps> groundhog day you know this is like this is really important to you right yes it's yeah. groundhog, day. It groundhog day puxatani phil <laughs> Puxatani <laughs> Phil is going to come out of that hole and he's either going to get scared by his shadow or he's not. And if he's scared by his shadow, we've got six more weeks of winter, guys. So I don't, 
who knows? Oh my god! That- we used to have like <laughs> <laughs> they used to wheel the TV into like my classroom when we were little and like watch the news as Puxatani Phil came out of the hole. You know what I mean? That's the name of the groundhog. Yeah. <laughs> Groundhog Day's always oh just God, been like Bill Murray in that movie where every day is just also excellent. Oh my God! I was about to say, are we? It's gonna we're, we're gonna like finish the interview and then start again. We'll just keep going <laughs> yeah. round like this. Good afternoon, interview, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm exactly. Rob Tovey. <laughs> Welcome talk to Talk Art, Lydia. Pettit. How are you today, Rob? Um, oh my it's God! That's amazing. Hilarious. Yes. And did you see as well that um that Scream is back in the cinemas in England? Yes. Okay. We should all go. Do you want to go to Scream? Let's go see Scream. I love Scream. I want to go. Oh my God. Yes. I have a membership of Prince Charles. I don't know if they're going to show it. You know what? I will come up up to London just to go to the cinema with you. I would love that. Okay. We're doing it. Awesome. Let's do it. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, you can find images of all the artworks we talked about today um, on our Instagram at TalkArt. But Lydia's also on Instagram. What's your Instagram, Lydia? Lydia Pettit. One word. Love that. Very straightforward. We will be tagging um, tagging Lydia as well and also White Cube. I think you can see the exhibition at whitecube.com and all you have to do is just put your email in and then it accesses an amazing universe of Lydia's work. Thank you. Um, so get over there. And what's next for you? Taking a little like mini kind of a little bit of a breather because last year was really intense for me. I actually am going to be doing a show in Margate. Uh, my friend, Are you? Yeah. So my friend Graham uh, Martin... <gasps> beautiful queen love him he's open he and his partner have a gallery here in culture falgar avenue in burgess park but they have a little satellite location on uh crescent road crescent avenue for, for in crescent. margate okay cool and so we we're gonna do a little project in that space i think in august but we're still figuring everything out oh my god let me know oh so i will excited. i will i will be there with bells on and so will russell because he's got a house in oh yeah we're going to get margaritas. We're going to be the margaritas. And if you ever need anywhere, yeah. if you ever need anywhere to stay, you can always stay at my house because I've got a new um, house. And, and that's for everyone oh listening. God, okay. Everyone yeah, everyone. Listening. Not for everyone listening. <laughs> Not for everyone listening. <laughs> yeah, call Graham, stay at his. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anybody no, anybody um, listening, you need a place to stay in Margate, just message Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Do not message me. But then... Do um, not disclose uh, the information. <laughs> Thank you. But other than that, I have... Um, I am having a show in 2023 with a gallery in Berlin called Gallery Udine. And um, really, that's me solo. So really excited about that. Well, we'll see you very soon for Cinema Time and Popcorn and yes. Horror. And lots of, lots of um, scissor holding. Yes. <laughs> lots of scissor. <laughs> we do. Okay, got love, it. Love a scissor. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back very Bye, soon. Bye, Bye. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com